0: Time of dearth or famine, so one went out into the field to gather herbs that they might have a vegetable stew. He found a wild vine with gourds and securing a goodly quantity, returned and shred them into the pot of pottage, quite unconscious that he was making use of a poisonous plant. Not until after the broth was poured out was the peril discovered. For well, when they began eating, the men cried out, There is death in the pot. How little we realize the many and varied forms in which death menaces us, and how constantly we are indebted to the preserving providence of God. The effects of the curse which the Lord God pronounced upon the sin of Adam have been by no means confined unto the human family. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, Genesis 3.17, was part of the fearful sentence, and as Romans 8.22 informs us, the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. No matter where one looks, the observant eye can behold the consequences of the fall. No section of creation has escaped. Even the fields and the woods bring forth not only thistles and thorns, but that which is noxious and venomous. Some of the most innocent-looking herbs and berries produce horrible suffering and death if eaten by man or beast. Yet for the most part, in fact with rare exceptions, God has mercifully provided the sentient creature with adequate protection against such evils. The instinct of the animals and the intelligence of men causes each of them to leave alone that which is harmful. Either the eye discovers, the nostril detects, or the palate perceives their evil qualities, and thereby they are guarded against them. It scarcely needs to be pointed out that what we have alluded to here in the material world adumbrates that which obtains in the religious realm. Among that which is offered for intellectual and spiritual food, how much is unwholesome and vicious. The fields of Christendom have many wild gourds growing in them, the use of which necessarily entails death in the pot, for fatal doctrine acts upon the soul as poison does upon the body. This is clear from that apostolic declaration, their word will eat as doth a canker or gangrene. 2 Timothy 2.17 where the reference is to the evil doctrine of heretical teachers. But just as God has mercifully endowed the animals with instincts, and man with sufficient natural intelligence to avoid what is injurious, so He has graciously bestowed upon His people spiritual senses, which, if exercised, discern both good and evil. Hebrews 5.14 Thus they instinctively Warn against unsound writings and preachers, so that a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. John 10, verse 5. The mercy of the Creator appears not only in the protecting senses with which he has endowed his creatures, so that they may recognize and avoid most if not all of the things around them which are inimical to their well-being, but also in providing them with suitable remedies and effective antidotes. If there be herbs which are injurious and poisonous, there are others which are counteracting and healing. If the waters of Mara are bitter and undrinkable, There was a tree at hand which, when cut down and cast into the waters, rendered them sweet. Exodus 15.25 If we read at the beginning of the sacred volume of a tree, the eating of whose fruit involved our race in disaster and death, ere that volume is closed, we are told of another tree, the leaves of which are for the healing of the nations. Revelation 22, 2. This fact, then, holds good in both the material and the spiritual realms, for every evil God has provided a remedy, for every poison an antidote, for every false doctrine a portion of the truth which exposes and refutes it. With these introductory observations, we may now consider the details of Elisha's eighth miracle. First, its location. And Elisha came again to Gilgal, and there was a dearth in the land. 2 Kings 4.38 It will be remembered that it was from this place that Elisha had started out with his master on their final journey together ere Elijah was raptured to heaven. 2 Kings 2, 1, where his sincerity has been put to the proof by the testing, tarry here, I pray thee. From Gilgal they had passed to Bethel, chapter 2, verse 2, and from thence to Jericho, and finally to the Jordan. It is striking to note that our hero, Wrought a miracle at each of those places, though in the inverse order of the original tour or journey. At the Jordan, he had divided its waters so that he passed over dry-shod before the wondering gaze of the young prophets. Chapter two, verses fourteen and fifteen. At Jericho, he had healed the evil waters. Chapter two, nineteen to twenty-two. At Bethel. He had cursed the profane children in the name of the Lord and brought about their destruction 2:23 23 to 25. And now here at Gilgal, Elijah exercises the extraordinary powers with which God had endowed him. Wherever he goes, the servant of God should, as opportunity affords, exercise his ministerial gifts. And Elisha came again to Gilgal, and there was a dearth in the land. Gilgal was to the east of Jericho, close to the Jordan, where there would be more moisture and vegetation than further inland. It was a place made memorable from the early history of Israel. It was there that the nation had set up twelve stones as a monument to God's gracious intervention when He had caused them to pass through the river dry-shod. Joshua 4:18 to 24. It was there too that they had circumcised those who had been born in the wilderness wanderings, thereby rolling away the reproach of Egypt from off them, evidencing their separation from the heathen as being God's peculiar people, type of the circumcision of the heart, Jeremiah four four, Romans 2.29, which is the distinguishing mark of God's spiritual children. It was there also that they had first partaken of the old corn of the land, Joshua 5.11, so that miraculous supplies of manna ceased. Yet even such a favored spot as this was affected by the dearth, for great wickedness had also been perpetrated there. 1 Samuel 15, 21-23 And compare Hosea 9, 15. Second, its occasion, There was a dearth in the land, the Hebrew word for dearth, rob, signifies a famine and is surrendered in 1 Kings 18.2. This is one of the four sword judgments which the Lord sends when He expresses His displeasure against the people. The sword and the famine and the noise of beasts and the pestilence. Ezekiel 14.21 in this dispensation, the famine with which a righteous God afflicts a land is one far more solemn and serious than that of dearth of material food, even that threatened in Amos 8:11. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water but of hearing the words of the Lord. Such a famine is upon Christendom today. It has not yet become quite universal, but almost so. Thousands of places dedicated to divine worship became social centers, political clubs, ritualistic playhouses, and today they are heaps of rubble. The vast majority of those still standing provide nothing for people desiring soul food, and even in the very few where the Word of God is ostensibly ministered, it is no longer so in the power and blessing of the Spirit. It is this which gives such pertinency to our present passage. And Elisha came again to Gilgal, and there was a dearth in the land. And the sons of the prophets were sitting before him. What a blessed and beautiful conjunction of things was this. How instructive for the under-shepherd of Christ and for his sheep in a day like this. Though God was acting in judgment, the prophet did not consider that warranted him ceasing his labors until conditions became more favorable. So far from it He felt it was a time when he should do all in his power to strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die, Revelation 3, 2, and encourage those who are liable to give way to dejection because of the general apostasy. Preach the word, be instant in season and out of season. Second Timothy four two is the injunction which God has laid upon his ministers. In seasons of dearth the servant of Christ needs to be particularly attentive to the spiritual needs of young believers, instructing them in the holiness and righteousness of a sin hating God when his scourge is upon the nation, and also making known his faithfulness and sufficiency unto his own in the darkest hour, reminding them that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Psalm 46, 1. See here what a noble example Elisha has left those called by God to engage in proclaiming his truth. The prophet was not idle, He did not wait for needy souls to come to him, but took the initiative and went to them. Times of national distress and calamity do not exempt from the discharge of spiritual duties or justify any slackness in employing the appointed means of grace. Nor did these sons of the prophets raise the objection that Elisha sought unto them at an inopportune time, and make the excuse they must needs busy themselves looking after their temporal interests. No, they gladly avail themselves of their golden opportunity, making the most of it by attentively listening to the instructions of Elisha. Their sitting before him betokened respect and attentiveness It reminds us of Mary who sat at Jesus' feet and heard His word, Luke 10.39, which Christ designated that good part, the one thing needful, verse 42. And though many today no longer may hear the word preached, they can still sit and read it. Be thankful for the printed page if it contains that which strengthens faith and promotes closer walking with God. Third, its beneficiaries. And he said unto his servant, Set on the great pot and seed pottage for the sons of the prophets. Verse 38. The order of action in this verse is significant, for it shows how the needs of the soul take precedence over those of the body. Elisha saw to it that they had spiritual food set before them ere arranging for material. On the other hand, the prophet did not conduct himself as a fanatic and disdain their temporal needs. Here, as everywhere in Scripture, the balance is rightly preserved. Attention to and enjoyment of fellowship with God must never be allowed to crowd out the discharge of those duties pertaining to the common round of life. As Christ thought of and ministered to the bodily needs of the hungry multitudes after He had broken unto them the bread of life, so His servant here was concerned about the physical well-being of these students, a plain and simple meal in either case. In the one bread and fish, in the other vegetable stew. And one went out into the field to gather herbs, and found a wild vine, and gathered thereof wild gourds, his lap full, and shred them into the pot of pottage, for they knew them not. Verse 39. Apparently, this person took it upon himself to go out and gather herbs in the field. No doubt his intention was good, but so far as the narrative is concerned, it records no commission from Elijah to act thus, a clear case where the best intentions do not warrant us to act unless we have a definite word from God and to use only those means he has appointed. It is possible this person may have returned thanks unto God when his eye fell upon those gourds and felt that his steps had been directed by him to the place where they were growing. If so, a warning, how easily we may misunderstand the divine providences when we are acting in self-will and interpret them in a way which justifies and apparently sanctifies the course we have taken. When Jonah fled from the command the Lord had given him to flee unto Tarshish and went down to Joppa, he found a ship going to that very place. Jonah 1 3 Seasons of dearth are peculiarly dangerous ones. Why so? Because in times of famine, food is scarce, and because there is less to select from, we are very apt to be less particular and act on the principle of beggars cannot be choosers. Certainly there is a warning here to be careful about what we eat at such times and especially of that which grows wild. The Hebrew word here rendered wild means uncultivated, and is generally connected with wild beasts, which were not only ceremonially unclean under the Mosaic law, but unfit for human consumption. It is to be duly noted that there was a plentiful supply of these wild gourds, even though there was a dearth in the land, so it is spiritually. When there is a famine of hearing the words of the Lord, Satan sees to it that there is no shortage of spurious food. Witness the number of unsound tracts and poisonous booklets which are still being freely circulated in this day when there is such a scarcity of paper to say nothing of the vile literature in which the things of God are openly derided. Yet though these gourds were wild, they must have borne a close resemblance to wholesome ones, or he who gathered them had not been deceived by them. Nor would it be said of those who stood by while he shred them into the pot of pottage, that they knew them not. This too has a spiritual counterpart, as the enemy's tares sown among the wheat intimates. Satan is a subtle imitator. Not only does he transform himself into an angel of light, but his deceitful workers transform themselves into the apostles of Christ. Second Corinthians eleven, thirteen, and 14 For they come preaching Jesus and his gospel, but as the Holy Spirit warns us, it is another Jesus and another gospel, than the genuine one. 2 Corinthians 11.4 Those who looked on while this person was shredding the wild gourds into the pot raised no objection, for they were quite unsuspicious instead of carefully examining what they were to eat. What point this gives to the apostolic exhortation, Prove all things, hold fast that which is good, 1 Thessalonians 5.21 And if we refuse to do so, who is to blame when we devour that which is injurious? Fourth, its need. So they poured out for the men to eat, and it came to pass, as they were eating of the pottage, that they cried out and said, O thou man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat thereof. Verse 40. It was not until the eleventh hour that they discovered their peril, for the deadly danger of these wild gourds was not exposed until they had begun actually eating of the same. Not only had their appearance deceived them, but they had no offensive or suspicious odor while cooking. The case was particularly subtle, for seemingly it was one of their own number who had gathered the poisonous herbs. Uh, note how the apostle commended the Bereans for carefully bringing his teaching to the test of Holy Writ. Acts 17.11. Much more do we need to do so with the preachings and writings of uninspired men. We need to consider diligently what is set before us by each ecclesiastical ruler. Proverbs 23.1 And compare Matthew 24.45 For though they be dainties and sweet words, yet are they usually deceitful meat. Proverbs 23.2-8 How we need to make Psalm 141 for our prayer. It was when the sons of the prophets began to eat the pottage that they discovered its deadly character. Ah, my hearer, are you able to discriminate between what is helpful to the soul and what is harmful? Is your spiritual palate able to detect error from truth, Satan's poison from the sincere pure milk of the Word? Do you really endeavor so to do, or are you lax in this matter? Hear my words, O ye wise, and give ear unto me, ye that have knowledge, for the ear trieth words as the mouth tasteth meat. Job 34, 2 and 3. But let us not miss the moral link between what is said in verse 40 and that which was before us in verse 38. It was those who had just previously been sitting at the feet of Elisha who now discovered the poisonous nature of these gourds. Is not the lesson plain and recorded for our learning? It is those who are instructed by the true servant of God who have most spiritual discernment and a better judgment than others not so favored. Then take heed what ye hear, Mark four twenty four, and what ye read. Fifth, it's nature. They cried out and said, O thou man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat thereof. What made them aware of their peril we know not. Nor was the child of God always conscious of it when some secret repression or unseen hand prevented him from gratifying his curiosity and turned his feet away from some synagogue of Satan where there was death in the pot being served in that place, have not all genuine Christians cause to say with the apostle who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Second Corinthians one ten. From that pot of death, Elisha under God delivered them. Sixth, its means. But he said, "Then bring me you," and he cast it into the pot, and he said, "Pour out for the people that they may eat," and there was no harm. Margin, evil thing, in the pot. Verse 41. The meal we regard as the word of God, either the written or the personal word. One of the great types of Christ is seen in the meat, i.e. meal offering of Leviticus 2. It is only by the word we are safeguarded from evil. See how graciously God provided for His own, though there was a dearth in the land, yet these sons of the prophets were not without meal. How thankful we should be for the word of God in our homes in such a day as this. Though someone else fetched the meal, he, Elisha, cast it into the pot. Seventh is meaning. Much of this has been intimated in what has already been pointed out, and consideration of space has obliged us to abbreviate the closing. Let it not be overlooked that verse 38 begins with and, after a reviving, be careful where you go for your food. If you are suspicious of the soundness of a religious publication, Take counsel of a competent man of God. Let not a time of spiritual dearth render you less careful of what you feed upon. In seasons of famine, the servant of God should be diligent in seeking to strengthen the hands of young believers. Only by making the word of God our constant guide shall we be delivered from the evils surrounding us. Chapter 13 Ninth Miracle It seems strange so very few have perceived that a miracle is recorded in 2 Kings 4:42 to 44 for surely a careful reading of those verses make it evident that they describe the wonder-working power of the Lord for no otherwise Can we explain the feeding of so many with such a little, and then a surplus remaining? It is even more strange that scarcely any appear to have recognized that we have here a most striking foreshadowment of the only miracle wrought by the Lord Jesus which is narrated by all the four evangelists, namely, His feeding of the multitude from a few loaves and fishes. In all of our reading, we have not only never come across a sermon thereon, but so far as memory serves us, not so much as a quotation from or allusion to this striking passage. Thomas Scott dismisses the incident with a single paragraph, and though Matthew Henry is a little fuller, he too says nothing about the supernatural character of it. We wonder how many of our hearers, before turning to this chapter, could have answered the question, where in the Old Testament is described the miracle of the feeding of a multitude through the hands of a man? First, its occasion. Though there was a dearth famine in the land, 2 Kings 4.38 Yet we learn from the first verse of our passage that it was not a total or universal one. Some barley had been grown in Baal Shalisha. In this we may perceive how that in wrath the Lord remembers mercy. Even where the crops of an entire country are a complete failure, an exceedingly exceptional occurrence... There is always food available in adjoining lands. Therein we behold an exemplification of God's goodness and faithfulness. Of old he declared, While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night, shall not cease. Genesis 8.22 Though more than 4,000 years have passed since then, each returning one has furnished clear evidence of the fulfillment of that promise, a demonstration both of the divine veracity and of God's continuous regulation of the affairs of earth. As we have said, it is very rare for there to be a total failure of the crops in any single country, for as the Lord declares, I caused it to rain upon one city, and caused it not to rain upon another city. One piece was rained upon, and the piece whereon it rained not withered. Amos 4 7. Second, its contributor. And there came a man from Baal Shalisha, and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits. Second Kings 4.42 Let us begin by observing how naturally and artlessly the conduct of this unnamed man is introduced. Here was one who had a heart for the Lord's servant in a time of need, who thought of him in this season of scarcity and distress, and who grudged not to go to some trouble in ministering to him. Shallowship adjoined Mount Ephraim, 1 Samuel 9, 4, and probably a journey of considerable distance had to be taken in order to reach the prophet. Ah, but there was more behind this man's action than meets the eye. We must look deeper if we are to discover the springs of his deed. It is written, A good man's steps are ordered of the Lord, Psalm 37.23 And thus it was in the case before us. This man now befriended Elisha because God had worked in him both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Philippians 2.13 It is only by comparing Scripture with Scripture we can discover the fullness of meaning in any verse. They passing on Let us pause and make application unto ourselves of the truth to which attention has just been called. It has an important bearing on each of us, and one which needs the more to be emphasized in this day of practical atheism. The whole trend of things in our evil generation is to be so occupied with what are termed the laws of nature that the operations of the Creator are lost sight of. Man and his doings are so eulogized and deified. That the hand of God and providence is totally obscured. It should be otherwise with the saint. When some friend comes and ministers to your need. While being grateful to him for the same. Look above him and his kindness. To the one who has sent him. I may pray, give us this day our daily bread, and then, because I am so absorbed with secondary causes and the instruments which he may employ, fail to see my Father's hand as he graciously answers my petition. God is the giver of every temporal as well as spiritual thing, even though he uses human agents in the conveying of them. And there came a man from baal Shalishah. This town was originally called Chalisha, but the evil power exerted by Jezebel had stamped upon it the name of her false god, as was the case with other places. Compare Baal-Hermon, 1 Chronicles 5:23. But even in this seat of idolatry there was at least one who feared the Lord, who was regulated by His law, and who had a heart for His servant. This should be a comfort to the saints in a time of such fearful and widespread declension as now obtains. But however dark things may get, And we believe they will yet become much darker before there is any improvement. God will preserve to Himself a remnant. He always has, and He always will. In the antediluvian world there was a Noah who, by grace, was upright in his generations and walked with God. In Egypt, when the name of Jehovah was unknown among the Hebrews... A Moses was raised up who refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So now there is one here and there as a voice in the wilderness. Though the name of this man from Shalisha is not given, we doubt not it is inscribed in the book of life. And there came a man from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits. Again we point out that there is more here than meets the careless eye or is obvious to the casual glance. Other passages which make mention of the first fruits must be compared if we are to learn the deeper meaning of what is here recorded and discover that this man's action was something more than one of thoughtfulness and kindness to Elisha. The first of the first fruits of thy land thou shalt bring into the house of the Lord thy God Exodus 23:19 repeated in Exodus 34:26 The first fruits then belonged unto the Lord being an acknowledgement both of his goodness and proprietorship a fuller and very beautiful passage thereon is found in Deuteronomy 26, 1-11. From Numbers 188 8-13, we learn that these became the portion of the priests. Whatsoever is first ripe in the land, which they, the people, shall bring unto the Lord, shall be thine, Aaron's and his son's, Everyone that is clean in thine house shall eat of it. Numbers 18.13 The same holds good in the rebuilt temple. The first of all the firstfruits shall be the priests. Ezekiel 44.30 This man from Shalashadin was in principle acting in obedience to the divine law. We say in principle because it was enjoined that the first fruits should be taken into the house of the Lord and that they became the priest's portion. But this man belonged to the kingdom of Israel and not of Judah. He lived in Samaria and had no access to Jerusalem and even had he gone there entrance to the temple had been forbidden. In Samaria there were none of the priests of the Lord, only those of Baal's. But though he rendered not obedience to the letter, he certainly did so in the Spirit, for he recognized these firstfruits were not for his own use. And though Elisha was not a priest, he was a prophet, a servant of the Lord. It is for this reason we believe that it is said he brought the first fruits not to Elisha, but to the man of God. That designation occurs first in Deuteronomy 33.1 in connection with Moses, and is descriptive not of his character, but of his office. One wholly devoted to God, his entire time spent in his service. In the Old Testament it is applied only to the prophets and extraordinary teachers. 1 Samuel 2.27 and 9.6, 1 Kings 17.18 and so forth. But in the New Testament it seems to belong to all of God's servants. First Timothy 6.11, 2 Timothy 3.17. What has been pointed out here should throw light on a problem which is now exercising many conscientious souls and which should provide comfort in these evil days. The situation of many of God's people is now much like that which obtained when our present incident occurred. It was a time of apostasy when everything was out of order, such as the present case of Christendom. It is the clear duty of God's people to render obedience to the letter of His Word, wherever that is possible. But when it is not, they may do so in spirit. Daniel and his fellows could not observe the Passover feast in Babylon, and no doubt that was a sore grief to them. But that very grief signified their desire to observe it, and in such cases God accepts the will for the deed. For many years past, this writer and his wife have been unable to conscientiously celebrate the Lord's Supper, yet by grace we do so in spirit by remembering the Lord's death for His people in our hearts and minds. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, Hebrews 10.25, is very far from meaning that the sheep of Christ should attend a place where the gods preponderate, or where their presence would sanction what is dishonoring to their master. They are passing on. We should point out another instructive and encouraging lesson here for the humble saint. As this man from Shalisha, acting in the spirit of God's law, journeying with his first fruits to where Elisha was, he could have had no thought in his mind that by this action he was going to be a contributor unto a remarkable miracle. Yet such was actually the case, for those very loaves of His became the means, under the wonder-working power of God, of feeding a large company of people. And this is but a single illustration of a principle which, by the benign government of God, is of frequent occurrence, as probably most of us have witnessed for ourselves. Ah, my We never know how far-reaching may be the effects and what fruits may issue for eternity from the most inconspicuous act done for God's glory or the good of one of His people. How often has some obscure Christian, in the kindness of his heart, done something or given something which God has been pleased to bless and multiply unto others in a manner, and to an extent which never entered his or her mind, and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley and full ears of corn in the husks thereof. How it appears that it delighted the Holy Spirit to describe this offering in detail, bearing in mind that a time of serious dearth then obtained. May we not see in the varied nature of this gift thoughtfulness and consideration on the part of him that made it? Had the whole of it been made up in the form of loaves, some of it might have gone moldy before the whole of it was eaten. At best, it would need to be consumed quickly. To obviate that, part of the barley was brought in the husk. On the other hand, Had all been brought in the ear, time would be required for the grinding and baking thereof. And in the meanwhile, the prophet might be famished and fainting. By such a division, both disadvantages were prevented. From the whole, we are taught that in making gifts to another, or in ministering to his needs, we should exercise care in seeing that It is in a form best suited to his requirements. The application of this principle pertains to spiritual things as well as temporal. Third, its generosity. Before noting the use to which Elisha put this
1: offering... This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books.